One of the fiercest rivalries in international football is England and Argentina. The two countries have a long history, going back to the role that English immigrants played in introducing the game to Argentina. You can see a British influence with some of the names, Newell's Old Boys, for example, a famous Argentinian club. Players with the surnames Babington, Brown and McAllister have played for the Argentina national team. England and Argentina first played each other at the World Cup in 1962. England won the game 3-1. Four years later, they met at Wembley in the quarterfinals. It was a controversial encounter, one that would cast long shadows over future meetings. In this edition of World Cup Rambling, I'm going to take a look back at that Wembley World Cup meeting. Welcome to Animals, England versus Argentina at the 1966 World Cup. England, as the host nation, opened the tournament with a grim, goalless draw against Uruguay. The tradition of England starting World Cups with a dreadful game existed even back in the glorious year of 1966. Hugh McIlvenny wrote, The Queen confined herself to saying she was sure we would see some good football in the weeks ahead. Wisely, she said nothing about that night's contribution. Things livened up a bit in England's second match, a 2-0 win over Mexico, most famous for a long-range screamer from Bobby Charlton. Roger Hunt scored the other goal. Hunt then got both goals as England beat France 2-0. The three Lions went through to the quarterfinals as group winners, but the performances had been unconvincing. Domestic and foreign journalists were unimpressed. The same old story. Ramsey laid into his players after the France game. As the quarterfinals approached, there were issues over two England players, Nobby Styles and Jimmy Greaves. In the France match, Nobby had committed a brutal foul on the French midfielder, Jacques Simon. Styles said, I was aware that it was late, a terrible tackle. Styles had gone unpunished by the referee par for the course in the 60s, but he had been hammered by the media. FIFA announced that if Styles was reported to them again by an official, then they would act. The FA top brass took the opportunity to haul Alf Ramsey in to give an account of the Styles incident. Ramsey had no time for the grey suits of the FA. Leo McKinstry wrote that the FA bosses saw the meeting as a golden opportunity to put their unaccountable manager in his place. The FA said that Styles should be dropped as he had tarnished the image of the national team. Ramsey, a player's man to his fingertips, told the FA bigwigs that if Styles was thrown out of the team, he would resign as manager. 
Style stayed, of course, and so did Ramsay. Ramsay's resignation threat boosted England's team spirit because it demonstrated the length that the manager would go to for his players. McKinstry wrote that loyalty has to be earned and with his robust support for Nobby, Alf had earned it from his team. He had put his job on the line for one of his players. For the cynics, the fact that Ramsey had gone into bat for his midfield destroyer summed up what Ramsey truly valued in footballers. Defensiveness, sterility, negativity, destruction, running around a lot, etc, etc. Not much room for style and flair. And that brings us neatly on to Jimmy Greaves. Greavesy was a goal machine, but he'd picked up a shin injury against France and he had been strangely blunt at World Cup level. He scored one goal in the four games at the Chile 62 World Cup and he hadn't found the back of the net in the three group games in 66. It's important to take that into account when you hear the stories about how Greavesy felt hard done by when Alf didn't pick him for the final. Greavesy's shin injury hadn't healed by the time the quarterfinals came round. Jeff Hurst was drafted in. James Corbett wrote that Hurst seemed better suited to Ramsey's wingless wonders, a system that preferred steady, well-rounded players. As England were getting ready for the game against Argentina, Ramsey told his team, Gentlemen, you know the sort of game you have in your hands this afternoon. Bobby Moore said, We accepted in our guts it was going to be hard, maybe brutal. When Argentina went to the 1958 World Cup in Sweden, they had been exposed as being out of touch with the faster, fitter European sides. The 6-1 defeat against Czechoslovakia was Argentina's never-again moment. After that, in the words of Brian Glanville, Argentinian football would shed its old traditions of spectacle and artistry and become more destructive. This was the start of an ideological struggle, a struggle between romanticism and pragmatism. Argentina's manager for 1966 was Juan Carlos Lorenzo, who had also been in charge in 1962. Lorenzo's philosophy could be summed up with the quote, How do you beat a team that has a great forward? Very simple. If you don't want somebody to eat, you have to stop the food coming out of the kitchen. I don't send somebody to mark the waiter, I have to worry about the chef. Lorenzo's methods of strong defence, tight man marking and counter attacking represented the new direction that football was moving in during the 1960s, but Argentina topped up their pragmatic tactics with helpings of violence. Argentina started the 1966 World Cup with a 2-1 win against Spain. This was then followed up with a nil-nil draw with West Germany. 
Neil Clark wrote that the Argentina-West Germany match was either a fascinating tactical study or an appallingly violent match, depending on which reports you read. Maybe both. Clark's book, Animals, The Story of England versus Argentina, is great on this rivalry, if you can ignore some unusual factual errors, which I can't, by the way. Tony Pawson, writing at the time, said that so long as they did not lose, Argentina had no worries if opponents or spectators were bruised by their abrasive style. They were hard and wiry, snapping into the tackle with the viciousness of a steel snare. Albrecht was set off for a brutal studs-up lunge that caught Weber in the midriff. The Argentina team picked up an official warning from FIFA and angry Lorenzo said, why were Argentina being singled out? Why were they being made scapegoats? Other teams have been just as bad, if not worse. Argentina's official warning helped fuel their sense of grievance about this World Cup. Argentina finished their group with a 2-0 win over Switzerland. Tony Pawson wrote that Argentina seemed inhibited by the FIFA warning. Nevertheless, they had qualified to face England in the quarterfinals. England were lining up with the famous 11 who would go on and win the World Cup final. Banks, Cohen, Moore, Big Jack Charlton, Wilson, Ball, Styles, Peters, Bobby Charlton, Hunt and Hurst. It had taken until the fourth game, but Ramsey had found his team. England had identified Onega, who played at the front of the Argentina midfield diamond, as the key man. Styles was given the job of marking Onega. Alan Ball had played in the first game against Uruguay, but had missed out on the Mexico and France games. Now Ramsey brought him back because he needed to block the runs of Marzellini, the Argentina overlapping left back. In Ramsey's tactical planning lay the respect that he had for Argentina. In the build-up to the tournament, Ramsey had identified Argentina as the strongest South American side. Bobby Moore said, They were often scruffy and untidy, but they had enormous skill. And lots of Moore's teammates have testified to the ability of the Argentina team. FIFA's technical report actually said, The Argentine team were technically skillful in their play and had physical condition to maintain pressure. It was sad to see this potential marred by bad behaviour of certain players and some dangerous fouling. There was some sabre rattling from both managers before the match. Ramsey talked up England's defence, saying that it was stronger than Argentina's. Lorenzo said that England had only three good players, Moore and the Charlton brothers. Neil Clark says of the media coverage in Argentina that it is almost uncanny, as if they were preempting what was going to happen. The Argentine reporters, just like the players, coaches and officials, were very concerned about the choice of referee and how the appointment would be made. 
The idea that the 1966 World Cup was fixed in favour of European teams and against South America would become a shibboleth, for want of a better word, in Latin America. The conspiracy theory has centred on the refereeing, both the style of the refereeing and how the referees were actually picked. There was a feeling in South America that refs were officiating World Cup 66 games in a quote-unquote European manner, i.e. being overly tolerant of physical play. The brutal treatment that Pelé received stands out as the most vivid example. Stanley Rice, the FIFA president and an Englishman, was believed to be at the top of the conspiracy. When Rice and the FIFA delegates allocated a German ref to do England versus Argentina and an English ref to do West Germany versus Uruguay, La Razón, a Buenos Aires newspaper, described this as most unusual. There were no South American delegates at the meeting, which added more fuel to the conspiratorial fire. Ratin, the Argentina captain, said, that the South American delegates had arrived at 7pm for the meeting, which was supposedly the agreed time, only to get there and find that the meeting was over. Marzellini says that the South American delegates got the time wrong, so Marzellini didn't buy into the fix idea, but plenty of his compatriots did. Hugh McIlvenny wrote at the time, There is no denying FIFA's choice of officials was ill-conceived, it was not a question of pandering the Argentinian prejudice, simply of removing unnecessary sources of friction. Leaving aside Argentina conspiracy theories, FIFA are a lot more above board, if you like, in how they choose referees and what happened in 1966. No South American delegates at the allocation of officials for the quarterfinals wouldn't be allowed to happen today. Jonathan Wilson wrote about another incident, the Argentina team not being allowed to warm up on the Wembley pitch on the evening before the game, and that fueled Argentina's sense of grievance. Wilson writes that, in retrospect, the rancor into which the game degenerated seems inevitable. This was a Saturday afternoon game, 23rd of July, 3pm kickoff at Wembley. For those of you who are interested in these things, all four quarterfinals kicked off simultaneously, which shows you what a different world it was. The World Cup wasn't being overly dictated to by television. Both BBC and ITV had England-Argentina live. The first foul was awarded against Argentina after only 10 seconds. Rudolf Kreitlein, the German referee, was described by Hugh McIlvenny as a small, rather comically imperious figure with a tanned, bald head. England looked dangerous early on. A Bobby Charlton corner was deflected onto the near post and then Charlton had a shot that was deflected wide. 
Styles showed the tactical preparation that England had put in by coming out from deep to pinch the ball away from Olega. Ball had a penalty appeal waved away after he was caught round the ankles by Marzellini. There was a flashpoint after seven minutes when Styles clattered Ferrero. The Argentina player surrounded the referee, but only a free kick was awarded and no booking. Styles then committed another foul, this time on Solari. Argentina were playing out from the back, with Roma, their goalkeeper, playing goal kick short and Ratin directing the play from deep. Ratin embodied the demeanour and character of the Argentina team, a wonderfully skilled footballer but with a nasty streak. With his height, his imposing figure and his dark Latin looks, Ratin fitted the stereotype of a villain from a Sergio Leone film. Although England were robust enough to match Argentina, and even Bobby Moore put in a blatant handball, the Argentina players stepped up the physicality with a couple of scything challenges. Onega forced a save from Banks, a long-range shot which the England goalkeeper pushed away for a corner, picking up a knock in the process. Kreitlein, in the early exchanges anyway, seemed to give a good number of fouls against England, which doesn't fit in with Argentina's perception of one-sided refereeing. Brian Glanville wrote that Kreitline was taking names with the zeal of a schoolboy collecting engine numbers. Hugh McIlvenny wrote that it was impossible to keep up with which players had been cautioned. He took names without interrupting play, apparently finding no difficulty in administering cautions on the run. Bobby Charlton was one of the players who had his name taken, but he remained unaware of this. In 1998, Keith Cooper, a FIFA spokesman, said, We went into a FIFA archive and found a match report showing that Bobby had indeed been booked, although he hadn't realised this at the time. People didn't speak each other's languages in those days. I think Bobby was trying to play the peacemaker and his intervention was misunderstood. Just over half an hour in, Bobby Charlton went on a fantastic run easily avoiding Ratin's attempt to trip him before hitting a shot. Ratin was booked for the trip, but it did seem tame compared to some of the other lunging tackles that had gone in. Earlier, Ratin had put in a much harder foul on Charlton, but bizarrely the referee had warned the wrong player, Solari. The England players have testified to Argentina's box of dirty tricks, with spitting hair pulling, eye poking and off the ball kicking. There's even a scene where you see Nobby Styles wiping his face after being spat on by Onega. Alan Ball described the Argentina team as the dirtiest, filthiest team I ever played against. Ratin then fouled Hurst before leading a protest about the free kick. Kreitlein by the stage was looking increasingly beleaguered although Brian Glanville says that Ratin's conduct was incompatible with the running of the game. For much of the first half, Ratin was quickly in there, towering over Kreitline to argue over decisions. Round about 35 minutes, the camera is on Argentina's left-hand side, and then you hear a roar in the distance, and the camera cuts across to the other side of the pitch, 
and you see Kreitlein sending Ratin off. According to Kreitlein, Ratin was dismissed for violence of the tongue, which sounds bizarrely like something out of a modern American university campus. Many sources have pointed out that Ratin didn't speak German and Kreitlein didn't speak Spanish, so how could the ref have known what Ratin had been saying? Kreitlein went on to say that, I sent Ratin off because he was following me and shouting at me. I had no option. He was trying to beat a referee. When Ratin was interviewed for FIFA TV, he said, The referee was totally biased. He gave everything to England. I showed the gentleman, if you can call him a gentleman, my captain's armband and asked for an interpreter to get some sort of explanation for the decisions he was making. I think he wanted to send me off all along. Chaos then ensues with the Argentina bench getting to their feet and the Argentina players surrounding Kreitlein. This sort of scene would have been alien to football fans at Wembley back in 1966. In Golasso, A History of Latin American Football, Andreas Campomar says that surrounding the ref and trying to bully him into submission was traditional at the River Plate. Kenneth Wolstenholme in commentary says that if Ratin goes, they'll all go, alluding to the threat of a possible Argentina walk-off, and Albrecht does appear to be calling for the team to abandon the pitch. Ken Aston, the head of the referees committee, came down to the scene and he was probably having flashbacks to when he refereed the Battle of Santiago in 1962. Also trying to pacify the situation was Harry Cavan, the guy who was running the IFA and was also a FIFA vice president. The remonstrations are frantic, with Ratin pointing to the captain's armband. After about six minutes of this farce, Bobby Moore comes forward to Kreitlein and he seems to be telling him that England want to hurry up and restart the match. Eventually, after eight minutes, play resumes, although Ratin is still arguing with the officials at the side of the pitch. At one stage, he sat on the Queen's red carpet. That's not a euphemism, by the way. Hurst then clatters Ferrero, a clear foul, but the Argentina player performs a spectacular role. Hugh McAvenny says, It would have been astonishing in a supremely fit man, let alone one who was badly injured. As the first half continues to play out, you see Ratin walking down the touchline and into the Wembley Tunnel. The official film, which is called Goal, gives you great footage of Ratin trudging off, accompanied by 60s spy thriller type music. The fans are barking Ratin, gesturing at him, and he's giving a bit back. He tugs at the Union Jack corner flag. Later on, Ratin would say that pulling at the flag was his only regret about the whole day. Ratin respects the Union flag. Kreitlein's eventful first half ends when he gets knocked over after trying to stop a flare-up between Bobby Moore and some of the Argentina players. Despite having a one-man advantage, England struggled to find a breakthrough. Brian Glanville wrote about England's bankruptcy in midfield. Argentina dug in and looked like they might be able to hold out. Indeed, when they had the chances, it was Argentina who continued to play the more fluent football. 
On the 77th minute, the breakthrough finally came. Peters swung in across towards the near post. Hurst jumped up and scored with a well-placed header. An England fan ran onto the pitch to congratulate Hurst. In keeping with the tone of the match, the fan was smacked round the head by Mass. Hurst's goal turned out to be the winner. At the final whistle, Gonzalez tried to swap shirts with George Cohen. An indignant Ramsey came onto the pitch to put a stop to it. Cohen, when he was interviewed in 2009, said, I was about to change shirts. Alf saw what was happening and he rushed over. He said, you're not changing shirts with him. He was incensed by the way they played. The photo of Ramsey intervening between Gonzalez and Cohen is one of the most famous of this World Cup. Gonzalez walks away and then he manages to swap shirts with Ray Wilson. I wasn't able to find a record of Ramsey's reaction to that. Kreitlein required a police escort to get safely off the pitch as the furious Argentina players tried to get at him. Kreitlein's shirt had been torn. Again, like with the Ratin incident, these were scenes that Wembley Stadium had never seen before. Later on, Kreitlein would have to be smuggled out of Wembley by the back entrance. Backstage there was drama. This bit is from Roger Hutchinson's book about England's 1966 campaign. One Argentine player spat on a FIFA official's blazer. Another urinated on the concrete tunnel wall. The Argentine coach Lorenzo went up to the English team doctor, Alan Bass, and rubbed his thumb and forefinger together meaningfully and Argentine players hammered on the locked doors of the England changing room, shouting insults and accusations, while others began to trash their own changing room. A few Argentina players have since denied that it was them trying to get into the England dressing room, saying it was probably overexcited journalists looking for comments. And then we have Ramsey's notorious remarks in his post-match interview. We have still to produce our best, and this best is not possible until we, we uh, meet the right type of opposition. That is, a team that comes out to, uh, out to play football and not act as animals. Animals, the word that would haunt Ramsey and poison football relations between England and Argentina, as well as England and the wider Latin American world. When England went to the 1970 World Cup in Mexico, and make sure you listen to that episode from Series 1, they were designated as the tournament villains, with Ramsey's animals remark as a key factor. There was always a touch of xenophobia about Ramsey, for all his admirable qualities as a man and as a manager. Not for nothing did Hugh McIlvenny describe this Wembley clash as not so much a football match as an international incident. The British Embassy in Buenos Aires was attacked before having its switchboard spammed up with abusive phone calls. Chris Freddy writes that it's hard to get a balanced view on this match. 
virtually all the testimony over here comes from the England players and English journalists. What I'll do is look first at the English-British reaction. Animals was the word on the back page of the News of the World. The Sunday Telegraph referred to the Argentina players as the butchers of Buenos Aires. The Glasgow Herald wrote that South American football built up a high reputation for skill. Argentina, in just four matches, have shown the seamy side of the game on the continent. Always there was the threat of trouble caused by the Argentinians' attitude of ignoring the laws and disputing the authority of her crime. Geoffrey Green in the Times also condemned the approach of Argentina, lumping them in with Uruguay who had been involved in a fiery match with West Germany. They deserve to be out since they are killing the game in more ways than one, not least in certain instances by undisciplined cynical behaviour and flaunting of authority. It should also be pointed out that plenty of British observers, Glanville and McIlvenny among them, were very critical of Kreitlein's officious refereeing and expressed some sympathy with Argentina, seeing as Ratin was sent off for a verbal offence rather than a physical one. It should also be noted that England actually committed more fouls, 33 to Argentina's 19, so that needs to be taken into consideration when trying to analyse the events at Wembley. James Corbett says that Argentina's main offence had been their gamesmanship and dissent. That goes to the culture clash between British and South American football, which would be demonstrated again in future England-Argentina matches, most notably in 1986. In British-English circles, hard tackling is okay, but sneaky cynicism, viveza as they call it in Argentina, is a no-no, whilst in Argentina it's the other way around. Alan Ball captured it perfectly when he was interviewed by John Sperling. We had a hard team, players like Nobby and Jack who could take care of themselves, but at least they were upfront about what they did. It wasn't done slightly. As for Argentina, their players told their journalists that they had been stitched up by the ref. The Argentine papers went along with this, variously describing the match as a scandal, abnormal, unjust. References were made to the refereeing arrangements on how it was predictable that Argentina would be screwed out of the game by a European ref on behalf of another European side. Ratin cynically said that England could not lose that match under any circumstances and that Kreitlein would have gifted the hosts a penalty if they required one. Valentin Suarez of the Argentina FA said that the referee was decisive. We must accept defeat with the same modesty as we triumph, but it wasn't an impartial referee. Further fuel was added to the fire by the fact that an English ref up at Hillsborough had dismissed two Uruguayans in the Uruguay-West Germany match. This prompted officials from Argentina, Brazil, Chile and Uruguay to organise an informal meeting before reporting their views on the refereeing to FIFA. Jal Havelange, the future FIFA president, but who in 1966 was helping to run the Brazil national team into the ground, he came up with an elaborate theory 
that the World Cup was fixed in order to further the political interests of European countries. Havelaar, of course, needed a deflection tactic after his disastrous administration of Brazil's World Cup defence. And you can listen to that episode from Series 1. Elsewhere, an Italian newspaper was sympathetic to Argentina, saying that Ratin's dismissal was a colossal injustice which offended against the very essence of the sport. When the Argentina team returned home, they were greeted like heroes, the moral victors of the World Cup, supposedly swindled out of it by the pirates who had swindled them out of the so-called Malvinas. Ramsey's animal remarks, in the words of one Argentina fan, irked us so much. He was virtually calling us savages and lesser beings. Ramsey was a throwback to colonial times. Argentina was never a British colony, but it had formed part of Britain's global economic sphere of influence, with the British government doing deals with Argentina's upper classes. Argentina exporting beef to Britain in return for Britain sending manufactured goods to Argentina. Yeah, Britain sending manufactured goods overseas. Yeah, that tells you how long ago that was. By the end of the 19th century, there was a large, wealthy English community in Argentina. When FIFA opened disciplinary proceedings, they contacted the FAA in relation to the animals press conference to say that Such remarks do not foster good international relations. Ramsey gave what Leo McKinstry called an apology in a half-hearted way. The England boss said that he had spoken under the pressure of the heated post-match atmosphere. Sorry, but not sorry. FIFA hit Ratting with a four-match ban, although he remained unrepentant. If you say it is a crime to ask for an interpreter, I might as well give up football. Ferrero and Onega were banned for three matches. Argentina were fined and the AFA were warned to clean up the team's act or risk being banned from the 1970 World Cup. For Argentina, the punishments were the final confirmation that FIFA, under the command of an Englishman of course, had been out to get them. Lorenzo, the Argentina manager, said the match was too big for Kreitlein and that no English player had been injured by Argentina's alleged violence. The controversy rumbled on and on. A few days after the World Cup final, which England won of course, P.S. Fairweather at the British Embassy in Rome wrote that the World Cup in England has provided further proof, if proof is needed, that a very good way to damage international relations is to have a really big sporting competition. A Foreign Office letter dated 12th of August 1966 said that we have had an extremely bad press in some countries over the World Cup, mainly we believe in Latin America. Many accusations have been levelled against the organisers of the competition and the fact that Sir Stanley Rice, the president of FIFA, is British and that the finals were held in England. The Foreign Office considered commissioning sports writers to refute the allegations before abandoning the idea because they didn't feel that the British writers would be trusted by foreign audiences. The Foreign Office had decided to take the advice of the British ambassador in Buenos Aires. 
sit quiet and let the storm blow out. Any attempt to weigh in on the argument will tend only to prolong it and to make matters worse. The England-Argentina match had immediate practical consequences. Ken Aston, who had refereed the Battle of Santiago in 1962 before becoming the head of the Referees Committee, explained that nothing had changed by 1966. The Argentines wouldn't respond to the German referee. It was sheer chaos. The next day, officials announced that Bobby and Jack Charlton had been cautioned, but neither player knew. That sent me thinking of a signalling system. Aston got an idea when he was driving home and saw traffic lights. Yellow for take it easy, red for stop. That's what football needs. And so the yellow card and the red card was born. A simple system that would transcend language barriers and could be easily understood by players, fans and journalists, leading to a glorious new era of fair play and sportsmanship. Yeah, right. Another pleasing consequence was a friendship between Ratin and Bobby Charlton. In 2012, Charlton said that he calls me at home prior to every World Cup so that we can talk about what happened between us and what will happen in the latest tournament. Brian Glanville wrote that the Wembley match would reverberate for years to come, would polarise European and South American football, evoking almost paranoid reactions from the River Plate. The Intercontinental Cup over the next few years would be scarred by brutal violence. The matches between Celtic and Raffin Club in 1967 and the matches between Manchester United and Estudiantes in 1968 would be particularly notorious. Estudiantes had a midfield hardnut by the name of Carlos Bilardo, who, as Argentina's manager, would become the headmaster of the win-at-all-costs school. Argentina's hounding of the referee in the 1990 final had echoes of Wembley 1966. Subsequent England-Argentina matches have carried the baggage from 1966, with the English perception about the sneaky, cynical Argentinians, a role that would be taken up by another Argentina captain in a number 10 shirt in a World Cup quarterfinal. In Argentina, there's been that perception of England as snooty, arrogant bully boys deserving of being brought down a peg or two, an attitude that found its best expression with Maradona's Hand of God go. The 1966 World Cup is one of the craziest World Cups. As a football event, it wasn't the most entertaining tournament and it's most famous for being the tournament that England won, but there was so much more to it. There was the Africa boycott, North Korea's journey, which created headaches in the corridors of power in London, the trophy being stolen and then later found by Pickles the dog, foreign journalists criticising English organisation, the demise of Brazil, the humiliation of Italy, the last great Hungary World Cup team, the South American conspiracy theories, this match between England and Argentina, 
and the final itself, which spawned so much drama and controversy. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew Ocott and also follow at World Cup Ramble. Make sure you've subscribed to World Cup Rambling on your podcast platform. And if you get a chance to rate and review the podcast, 